Chapter Three of the Story of Avis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Story of Avis, by Elizabeth Stuart Phelps. Chapter Three. By nature a philosopher, spirited, swift, and strong. Plato. Young and a woman, tis thus she was mine. Goethe's Pandora. When Hegel Dobel, professor of ethics and intellectual philosophy, thirty-five years old and a bachelor, brought home one day to the old-fashioned house set apart for the incumbents in his department, a bride of nineteen New York summers, all Harmouth shook its highly intellectual head. In the nature of things, it was argued, a man of years and reputation, a man pre-eminently a scholar as well as a student, a man capable of writing the celebrated brochure, was fitched a mystic, to say nothing of the correspondence with the Berlin professor whose name Harmouth never could remember, on the subject Harmouth always found it difficult to recall, even throwing out of the question the pamphlet on the identity of identity and non-identity, which that other celebrated German, name also gone for the moment, was understood to have discussed at one of his Sunday dinners, before his mind gave way. Such a man, it was urged, must find a slender stock of conjugal promise in the choice of a society girl, known to have been gay and understood to be peculiar. Any man, in fact, filling the metaphysical chair in Harmouth University, must discover that he had mistaken the premises of his syllogism in marrying a spoiled child, whose parents had experienced difficulty even in restraining her within polite circles at all. This pretty young thing, who peeped shyly as an anemone out of her stylish hat at the congregation in the college chapel, looked demure enough, and delicate, as if a waft of wind or sun would wilt her. Yet it was distinctly understood, below the bated breath of Harmouth, that the great professor had won this little lady but just in time to prevent her from running away to go upon the stage. Perhaps, indeed, it was a trifle gossipy to call it running away, and Harmouth never gossiped. Miss Mercy had suggested as much as this, and the phrase was decorously amended. Miss Mercy was a mild and matronly power in Harmouth always, even before her marriage. In fact, Harmouth had privately selected her as the proper Mrs. Doble long before the New York girl was met or thought of. Was she not a lady of unexceptionable antecedents, whose family had been professional for as many generations as a good American could conscientiously count at all? Could it be denied that she was healthy, handsome, and thirty-one? Could one fail to recall her marked, and lucrative, success as principal of the Harmouth Female Seminary? And, if you chose to consider her known interest in the university's scientific endowments, and where else was there a woman who had read the professor's lectures on Spinoza through? It was not for a long while, indeed, not until Miss Mercy had become the second Mrs. Hogarth, and the President's wife had avenged the spinster, that Harmouth was comforted for this highly educated lady. But perhaps she was right. The little bride had not exactly run away. Yet there was certainly a freak for the stage intercepted somewhere and clearly she was a restless, glittering, inefficient thing, like a humming-bird turned radical. Would the great professor bend his well-salaried powers happily now to investigating the varieties of honey which his quiet garden roses might have and hold for a petulant beak? 
At all events, it was as clear as the law of excluded middle that the great professor, like any small man who delays marriage till he has reached the age when his neighbours should choose for him, had made a serious blunder. The professor, however, like every other genius, had a touch of obstinacy about him, and persistently delayed, as time ran metaphysically on, to discover that he had blundered at all, was an inexcusably tedious while in beginning to be disappointed in his marriage-venture and ended by flatly refusing altogether to be miserable. This was an unscientific evolution from precedent, which tried Harmouth to the soul's depths. We can forgive our friend much. All true allegiance deepens in geometrical proportion to his deserved misfortune, and a crime can only test the temper of sound loyalty. But who can pardon him for not being unhappy, when we have foretold him that he would be? If the professor's little wife were a humming-bird, she was a very tender and true one. She loved the great hand that had lured her from the fields on which the wild dew lay, and sipped his grave domestic honey with happy upturned look. Once in a while, when the professor, strolling about the house in the play-hour which rigorously followed meals, saw through the window Mrs. Hogarth walking intelligently and plumply by upon the President's arm, a fine scintillant gleam of fun twinkled in his deep-set eyes. He said nothing. He never said anything of any matter which kindled that rare spark under the cavern of his brows. But he strode across the room to where his wife was sitting, pulled his nervous hand out of his pocket, and bending his gaunt, awkward shoulders, gently laid a finger under her chin, and turned her young face up to his. And then she said, "'Do you want anything, Professor?' And then he said, "'Only to see if you look happy and well, my dear.' Perhaps after that they looked into one another's eyes a moment with something of the gravity which is inseparable from all deep happiness before she stirred, and put up both lithe arms to be caught, to be clasped, to be devoured against his heart. For it was the old imperious story that we know so well, this story of the scholar and the woman, who can explain the witchery by which it pulls at the heart-strings of us all. As alive as Faust, as old as Abelard, as tender as Petrarch, as eternal as Dante, it keeps pace with our calmer passions and our serener time. In the sweep of pre-eminently well-regulated affections that eddied through the real life of that decorous university town, there was probably none more constraining, there certainly was none more controlling, than the love which had settled upon the quiet home where the rebellious little society girl had passed her honeymoon, and begun to extract from joy the elements of rest. It was the same old intense, delirious story, the overwrought mind captured by the unused heart, the monarch will bent to the subject emotion, the great purpose gone suppliant to the great passion, a wise man become as a fool for a pair of velvet arms, and the author of the identity of identity and non-identity was the elected priest or victim of the ancient and honourable experience. That was as one chose to look at it. Harmouth might call him a victim, but in the glamour of his own vision he was the awed priest chosen for an imposing and sacred service no college boy in his classroom struggling with his first fancy struck wilder currents than this grave man in his late impetuous love there was no girl dreaming with shy eyes in the twilight before a folded and glorified ideal who had a simpler or more romantic faith in it than the metaphysician held in his 
In his pure and studious life, Hegel Dobel had been blessed above his own deeming or dreaming in this, that he had never spent his nature upon unworthy, or even mixed or insufficient feeling. The great passion of his life was one with its great love. The forces of both overtook him with the swiftness of a freshet. He yielded to the torrent with the childlike and ecstatic surprise that he would have felt at the discovery of a new axiom. It was Eden in the old-fashioned house, and the tremulous amazement of the first man and the first woman filled it. To them was given dominion over a world as unreal to souls incapable of sublimation by a great love as the paradise of Milton or the palace of Kubla Khan. They were not of dull fancy, after all, who nicknamed the professor's wife. There was something bird-like in her in her buoyant attitudes, in a way she had of turning her head sidewise to look at her husband as she perched upon the arm of his chair, in the cooing tones of her clear but uninsistent voice, and especially in a certain reserve that was very marked in her. We are apt to think of a bird as rather an open-hearted, impetuous creature, telling all she knows, pouring out her private affairs to the whole world's hearing by simple force of her nature. In fact, perhaps no creature is more capable of concealment. Naturalists load us with stories of her little stratagems. We have but to look intently in her eye to be made conscious that she has her mental reservations about many matters, in particular, opinions about ourselves which it is not worth while to explain. The robin at your door on a June morning seems to be expressing himself with lavish confidence, but to a patient listener, his song has something of the exuberant frankness which is the most impenetrable disguise in the world. The sparrow on her nest under your terrace broods meekly, but the centuries have not wrung from one such pretty prisoner a breath of longing for the freedom of the summer day. Do her delicate, cramped muscles ache for flight? Her fleet, unused wings tremble against the long roots of the overhanging grass? She turns her soft eye upon you with a fine, far sarcasm. You may find out, if you can. It was in memory, perhaps, of some of the sweet nonsense of her honeymoon, that Mrs. Doble had selected for her little daughter the name of Avis. Mamma said the child one day, not coming to her mother's knee, but sitting in the sunlight at some distance from her on the floor. What shall I be? What shall you be, Avis? Drayton Allen is going to keep a dog-store, and Ben Hogarth is going to be president of some college. What shall I be? What will Coy be, my dear, and Barbara? Coy is going to be a lady, she says, Mamma. Very well, said Mamma. And Barbara is going to get married. Mamma made no reply. I think I'd rather keep dogs, said Avis gravely after a silence. After some moments, receiving still no answer, the child rose to her feet, pushing back her thick hair from her eyes, standing in the full sun. Mamma, did you run away? Did I what? Barbara says you ran away. She says you ran away in a stage. Barbara told you a very wrong story, my child. Come here." Avis threw down her playthings and went slowly to her mother's knee. The mother put her arm expressively about the child, but still she did not speak. Mamma began the little girl again, I have never seen anybody in a theatre. Some day you shall, when it is right and best. Mamma, slowly after a pause, did you ever want to keep dogs? Not exactly, Avis. I thought not. 
You know you didn't like that dog I had who drowned himself. Now what I'd like to know is this. If you wanted to keep theatres, why didn't you?" Mrs. Doble, with some signs of agitation, laid aside her sewing and drew her little daughter upon her lap. She looked into Avis's eyes for a long moment, with that instinctive assurance of sympathy and impulse of confidence, which, from the hour when the baby's face is first upturned to hers, a mother feels at times in the presence of a woman-child. "'Avis,' she said gravely, "'I married your papa. That is why I never acted in the theatre.' "'Oh, yes! Well, I didn't know. Did you never want to run away after you had married papa? Did you never care about the theatre again? Mamma, what is the matter? Are you cold? I don't want to go away and play. I haven't talked enough. I have a great many questions to ask you. I like you better than I do Barbara's mother. You're so much prettier, Mamma. But long after that, after her pretty mother had become a thin, sweet vision, like a fading sketch to the young girl's heart, she recalled with incisive distinctness the way in which she had been put down from her mother's knee that morning, then impulsively recalled, snatched, kissed, and cried over with a gush of incoherent words and scalding tears. She never saw her mother cry before or after that. But all that she could understand of what she said was, "'Oh, my little woman! Mother's little woman! Little woman!' This glimpse into her mother's heart, the child, held by some blind and delicate sense of honour, never shared with any other human eyes. When she herself was a woman grown, and not till then, she asked her father once if he supposed her mother to have possessed genuine dramatic talent. "'Unquestionably,' said the professor, lifting his head, "'my wife was not like most women, given to magnifying every little aesthetic taste into an unappreciated genius. She had, beyond doubt, the histrionic gift. Under proper conditions she might have become famous." "'Why, then, should she never have cultivated such a gift?' ventured Avis. "'Because,' said the man simply, "'she married me.' "'But do you not suppose,' persisted Avis, "'that in all those years, shut up in this quiet house, she ever knew a restless longing in that—in those—in such directions?' Avis faltered beneath the old man's sharp and sudden look, bent upon her in a kind of deep, indignant pity. "'Your mother was my wife,' he said, superbly, "'and my wife loved me.'" One other morning spent in the sunlight with her mother became pictorial in Avis's memory, one other only, and whether the first threw the more powerful focus upon the last, or the last against the first, it were difficult to say. Avis was nine years old that morning. It was winter, and her father waked her in the freezing dawn, while as yet only a single feather of gold flecked the east, where snow-clouds were piling high. Her mother had been ailing, ill. None knew exactly why. It was quite certain that she had no disease, only the waxing and waning and wasting of a fine, feverish excitement, for which there seemed to be neither cause nor remedy. Last night they told her she was better. They had called her now in hot haste. Swift feet passed to and fro across the halls, and voices broke and whispered at the doors. The child in her little nightgown pattered across the entry, shivering with cold. But when her mother asked her why she cried, she said Papa had hurt her hand when he took hold to lead her in. The light had broadened when she climbed upon the high, old-fashioned bed, and pulled aside the clothes to get in under her mother's arm. Some one objected to this 
but someone else said, "'Let the child alone!' The colour in the east unfolded, and hung against the windows like a wing, she thought, as she lay down, and curled against her mother's heart. Mamma began the child, "'I am sorry you were sick. Shan't I bring you a little picture that I drew last night?' But her mother only answered, "'There, my daughter. Mother loves her. There.' It is a picture of a bird, Mama, with trees. I thought you'd like to see it. And, oh, Mama, the wing! See the wing the sun has made upon the sky! It looks as if it was meant to wrap us, wrap us, wrap us in!" As Avis, leaning on one little arm, uttered these words in the dreamy monotone of an imaginative child, the sunburst broke full against her face. It was then that there rang throughout the room a tense and awe-struck cry. It was not in any sense a cry of pain, rather surcharged with a burden of wondering joy. Then there followed words resonant and vibrant. Under the shadow of his wing shalt thou abide. But when Avis, dazzled by the sunrise, turned her head, some one came from behind, and swiftly laid a gentle hand across her eyes. And though she begged them, till the day was dark again, to let her go back, just for once, and hear Mama say, Mother loves her none would give her leave. The professor's sister was a homeless widow, of excellent Vermont intentions and high ideals in cupcake. In the course of a severe and simple life, she had known one passion, and one only—the refined passion for flowers, which makes the sole poetry of many a plain, prosaic story. She accepted her calling and election conscientiously, when she was summoned to that most difficult of human tasks—the training of another woman's child. When Hegel's letter came, beseeching her to bring the presence of the ever-womanly into the desolate house of a heartbroken man, she prayed over it for a week. And then she spent another in wondering what it would be her clear duty to do by that child in regard to pickles and hot biscuit. Her poor mother had never attended to her diet. She held it to be the first business of any woman who undertook the management of a literary family like her brother's, to attend properly to its digestion. And then she wrote her brother simply, saying nothing of either prayers or pickles, that she would come and do the best she could. Her sole stipulation was that she might be allowed to bring her geraniums. Her best—to her glory, be it said, from the day when she first unpacked in the professor's house the rather rural-looking trunks, to which Avis's town-bred sensibility immediately objected—Aunt Chloe faithfully, evenly, and nobly did. And what could angels or mothers more? Yet when she had been in her brother's family a year, she came to him one day with a sunken look about the temples—a family look, indicating sternly repressed feeling, in which she bore at times a marvellous likeness to the professor. "'Hegel,' said the childless woman, with a quivering lip, "'I should like to have your little daughter love me, but I'm afraid she never will.' "'What's the matter now?' The professor brought his black brows together, looking up from the copy of Hamilton's logic in which he was trying, with the patience of genius, to keep six places open with five fingers. "'Nothing very new,' sighed Aunt Chloe. "'The same old story. She had to rip her seam out of the—the undergarments, and she would not stir the jelly. And when I went to ask her why she had not made her bed, I found her putting tinfoil over the medallions that she brought from Mantua, making impressions of them with her finger-nail. The noses, Hegel! It'll displease you very much to see the noses. The Lacawan is as black as the Register and the Apollo." The professor strode across the room and into the parlour where Avis sat, deep in the broad cushioned window-sill, with the medallions on her lap. A vein on the child's temple began to throb as she looked up. 
Papa, I never meant to hurt their noses. I didn't know they were so tender. Just like sugar. I wanted to make a statue out of the tinfoil. Poor Apollo, Papa. He's just a snub." Avis brought the medallions to him with a swift, sweet gesture of appeal, which too frequently converted her clearest faults into her most irresistible claims upon one's sympathy, or, as Aunt Chloe put it, turned her from a sinner into a sufferer at once. "'Never mind the noses,' said the professor, irritably tossing the medallions to one side. "'Avis, don't you love your Aunt Chloe?' "'Why, yes,' said Avis, with wide eyes. "'I like Aunt Chloe. It isn't Aunt Chloe that I hate.' What do you hate?" Her father looked at her across the great black logic, as a depressed garrison might look at the progress of an enemy whose movements it was utterly unable to forecast. "'Aunt Chloe says it's unladylike to hate,' said Avis. "'If it is, then I'd rather not be a lady. There are other people in the world than ladies. And I hate to make my bed, and I hate, hate to sew chemises, and I hate, hate, hate to go cooking round the kitchen. It makes a crawling down my back to sew. But the crawling comes from hating. The more I hate, the more I crawl. And Mamma never cooked about the kitchen. I think that is a servant's work. I am very ugly to Aunt Chloe sometimes, Papa. And then I'm sorry. But I don't tell her unless I think of it. On the whole, Papa," added the child gravely, I have so many sorrows in this world that I don't care to live. But, said her father, with rather a gymnastic sternness, it is shirking not to attend to your work. There is nothing meaner than a shirk." "'I'm not a shirk, Papa,' said Avis, with hot, indignant eyes. "'It isn't the work that I hate. I raked up the leaves for you last fall, and you said I did it most as well as Jacob's. And I go to the post-office every day. It's not the working, but the hating and the crawling that I mind." "'It is proper that little girls should learn to sew and cook.' said the professor of intellectual philosophy faintly. He turned the leaves of the logic. He groped blindly among the marginal annotations. His two hundred unruly boys in the college classroom he could manage. But all the wisdom of Sir William was as the folly of a fool to teach a great man what to say to a little girl who did not like to sew. There was a vein of broad tolerance in Hagel Doble's sturdy nature. He knew that it would give him a crawling to sit for fifteen minutes at that slow, nervous, precise drawing in and out of the needle, at which his little daughter, with flushed cheeks and twitching fingers, sat by the hour at a time. A crawling! Call it a brain fever! Yet it was unquestionably proper for all women—certainly for women belonging to himself—to be versed in those domestic accomplishments to which the feminine nature was created to adjust itself happily at some cost. So he only said, well, well, my dear, do as Aunt Chloe bids you, and hate as few things as possible. And now, if you want to make statues, spare my medallions, and put the tinfoil on your dolls' faces in the playroom." "'My dolls!' said Avis. Her colour came swiftly. She lifted her little head with the helpless look of one who receives a perfectly unavengeable insult. "'Why, Papa, I haven't had a doll since long before Mamma died. You know I buried my last one under the tool-house, and Coy came to the funeral." But Papa and Sir William the Wise were gone. "'It is an admitted principle in all systems of education,' said the professor plaintively to his sister, "'that some concession shall be made to the moulds of individuality. In point of fact, all theories cool off in such moulds at last. There certainly is this element of justice in the electoral system which is in danger of becoming so threatening to our universities.' "'Do you want Avis to give up learning to cook?' said Aunt Chloe, with a puzzled face. Certainly not. 
said her father, retreating promptly and safely behind the cover of the logic. Aunt Chloe sighed. In her heart she thought that if Avis failed in the end to grow up like other girls and be a credit to her, it would be owing chiefly to her poor mother's city-bred, unthrifty system of allowing servants to manage their work with so little personal supervision. It has been said that every human opinion is strong enough to have had its martyrs. Aunt Chloe would have gone to the stake cheerfully for this conviction. End of chapter 3